0: My guest today, Hans Binnendijk, is a senior fellow at the Center for Transatlantic Relations and a longtime D.C. foreign policy insider. He served in top posts in the Clinton administration, including the National Security Council, and was founding director of the Center for Technology and National Security Policy at National Defense University. Hans has had many affiliations over the years, too many in fact to list, but one I do want to highlight is that he is a board member of Humanity in Action, an international educational program. I am a senior fellow of Humanity in Action, and as you know, Humanity in Action is a partner with this podcast. Hans was born in the Netherlands in the wake of World War II, came to the United States as a baby, and describes how growing up in an immigrant household during the chaos of the Vietnam War in the 60s inspired in him a desire to pursue a career in foreign policy. We have a good conversation about some of his career highlights with some fun and interesting digressions along the way with foreign policy events that he interacted with throughout the course of his career, including NATO expansion, a dispute over U.S. occupation of Okinawa, Japan, and one book he wrote about the biggest foreign policy blunders in history. Before we begin, I do want to encourage you to get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I've said this before, but I, I do this for you. So if there's something you'd like to learn more about, then send me an email. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or follow the link in the description field of the podcast in iTunes. I love hearing from you, so don't hesitate to reach out. And now here is Hans Binnendijk. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think you first came on my radar many years ago when you wrote an op-ed comparing the number of members of military marching bands to the number of U.S. Foreign Service officers. Where did that comparison come from? That was that was something fascinating. I've seen it quoted often, and I've quoted it often since then, and I often credit you.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I'm not sure I deserve the credit for that. I did. You should I, I take it. I think I put that <laughs> into, uh, into one of my op-eds earlier. Uh, I don't think I originated it, but it... Um,
0: well, in my I mind, the, you originated it.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, so I, the the point there... Uh, well, relates really to the importance of diplomacy, to the importance of having a vigorous uh, State Department Agency for International Development, a, uh, a diplomatic uh, capability. We have seen uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis uh, just very recently again say that uh, if you cut funding for the State Department, uh, you're going to have to buy the Defense Department a lot more bullets. And that's a very simple but direct way uh, of of saying that investment in diplomacy is is very important and can save lives.
0: Well, yet his boss did not seem to to take note of the the White House budget that was released in May, uh, really profoundly and dramatically cuts State Department budget. I mean, the cut was about
1: thirty percent. Yeah, which that is was, which is
0: huge. Um, it probably it is, won't yeah, fly. I mean, yeah.
1: No, I mean, this is all about people. I mean, the State Department budget is about people. Uh, and, you know, hiring the best to be our diplomats, they're on the front lines. I'm sure you've been in the C Street entrance of the State Department, and you've seen the wall there with the names of all the Foreign Service officers who have been killed. This is not – these are not easy jobs. They're often very dangerous jobs, and they're out there on the front lines as much as or even more than our military is. Uh, to try to make this a more stable uh, world in which we live. So, um, yeah, I think those cuts were almost symbolic. It was Trump demeaning the State Department, uh, but I don't think they'll stand. Uh, I just think there is enough wisdom uh, on Capitol Hill uh, to stand the
0: those frivolous. Yeah. Yet, yet there still are so many vacancies at top political posts in the State Department. I mean, including like a, there's no deputy secretary of state as we speak. To what extent do you think those vacancies are, are affecting sort of the conduct of, of US foreign policy right now? I mean, like, like, could you, for example, see during the NATO summit any sort of apparent implications of just having so many top level positions remain vacant?
1: Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, whether, uh, that had impact. I mean, I, what I do know is that there were a couple of keywords that were removed from Trump's speech, which should have been in there. Now, whether that would have changed if there were more senior, uh, State Department representation there paying attention to it, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but I'll, I'll say this in, in general. Um, first of all, I, I do think that some of the Key appointments uh, like uh, Mattis, Kelly, uh, H.R. McMaster's uh, uh, Tillerson at State. Uh, These these are folks who do have a lot of international experience, Uh, and uh, they have they're they're not highly ideological. Um, Somebody like Tillerson has done a lifetime of negotiation, not for the federal government. But for business, but nonetheless, he's experienced. So, I think those top-level appointments are relatively sound, um, and uh, they're working together. Uh, they're often uh, in contention with uh, uh, with some of the leadership in the core White House. Uh, and so far they have been able to moderate and stabilize uh, much of our foreign policy. Not all of it, Um, they're often rolled out to try to explain the latest Trump tweet Um, but uh, they're there so that's the good news. The bad news as you indicated is that the lower levels are not uh, fully uh, filled. Uh, Now having said that, uh, it depends on who they're filled with. Uh, I mean if they are filled uh, with ideologues uh, that will um, uh, who will come in and and uh, simply align themselves with the uh, the folks in the White House who are um, alt-right, let's say. Uh, then that's not going to do us any good. Um, in some ways, you know, we now have civil servants, foreign service officers. Uh, temporarily filling some of these positions, and uh, you know that actually may be a good thing. We'll have we'd have to tr- sort of see what those appointments upcoming will look like.
0: Uh, so I would love to pivot now and learn a little bit more about you. I, I said you came on my radar with that op-ed many years ago, but we've met in person a couple times at various Humanity in Action uh, events. So uh, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about you, your background, where you came from. So where where are you from? What is your background? You have a Dutch last name, I think, right?
1: Well, I was born in Leiden in the Netherlands. Well, there you go. Uh, after the war, uh, I came to the United States as a baby because my... Uh, father was a, an astronomy professor, and basically there were no jobs uh, in a devastated, war-devastated Europe, so he came to the United States to Swarthmore College to teach for a year or two and never went back. So
0: you uh, you're born a day after the end of the war?
1: No, I was born in uh, uh, December 46, but I okay. was in that post-war period. Well, um, and, what uh, what sort
0: of experiences did your did your parents, did your, did your father, did, did your mother sort of share with you about how they sort of survived the war and, and, and their experience during the war.
1: Well, you know, I heard the the stories of uh, life under Nazi occupation, and especially that last winter uh, in uh, 44, 45, the hunger winter where thousands of Dutchmen starved, or, you know, their own efforts to try to get food from the family, eating tulip bulbs, etc., So I I had all of that, and uh, that, you know, um, my parents were both fairly austere and conservative in their personal lifestyles. I think that had a profound impact on me. The rest of my family, much of my family was in Indonesia during the war, captured by the Japanese and uh, uh, sent to prisoner of war camps. Uh, So I had that experience as well. So I, you know, as I was growing up, the... Impact of international relations and war uh, on my family um, it was something that I was very attuned to. I remember um, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, and uh, again, this—you know—I uh, remember building a bomb shelter in the basement. Um, uh, so again, it, the impact of international affairs and war and peace issues on the family, on those that I loved think was fairly profound. And like how, that
0: was... how forthcoming were your parents about their experiences during the war? I mean, was it something that they hid or they were reluctant to speak about?
1: They shared that with me. I mean, not excessively, but when I asked, I certainly listened very carefully and asked questions when they were talking about it. Um, so uh, I think that, that, that whole history and, you know, a, a small, Dutch family coming to the United States, um, sort of holding together, speaking Dutch at home, that family in the United States working together uh, to uh, create a new life, I think it had, a, had an effect on me. It certainly um, gave me a, an orientation towards international affairs. Probably the other thing that did that more than anything was the Vietnam War, um, which uh, you know my entire generation focused on. Watching, you know, classmates and uh, others of my generation being drafted and sent off to a war that we all felt was uh, started for the wrong reasons, being fought for the wrong reasons.
0: Well, were you drafted?
1: I I was in the Army. I was not drafted. I did not go to Vietnam, but I served in the Army and the Reserves for several years. But, I, you know, that uh, so that whole experience uh, and then, you know, campus life during that period with all the demonstrations, uh, it uh, just it created for me a, a real interest in international affairs. It reinforced my interest in international
0: affairs. So uh, how did you identify international affairs as being like an actual vocation that you could pursue as opposed to just something that you're interested in?
1: Well, I can remember the day that it happened. Uh, I was a freshman in college. Uh, the Vietnam War was on. I was very conscious of the issues and thinking hard about them and uh, I was a biology major my freshman year. I was walking across the Quad at University of Pennsylvania and I was sort of hit with this epiphany uh, which in retrospect seems very simplistic and sophomore but uh, uh, it was that, you know, if I if I uh, pursue a career in international affairs, uh, you know, if you're a, a biologist or medical doctor, which is where I was headed, you save lives one at a time. If you can stop one war, uh, you can save a lot of lives. So something as simplistic as that um, um, sort of changed my uh, thinking about where my career was going.
0: So how did you start to like apply yourself towards that towards that uh, revelation towards that epiphany?
1: Well, the first thing I did was I studied history. I was a history major in college. I figured that was a good basis for understanding the world as it uh, as it is today. So I studied Russian history, European history, American history, and um some political science, and then I went on to graduate school at the Fletcher School. Focusing very much on international affairs, national security issues, uh, European security, but also Asia. I did my dissertation on Japan and the return of Okinawa to Japan. So I I was looking basically, even at that time, at uh, America's principal allies around the world and how we relate to them.
0: And uh, did you decide that you wanted to go into academia at that point?
1: Um uh, no, I I did get my PhD with an interest in research and academia, but I uh, did not uh, did not at that point want to um, teach full time, and I didn't. I spent you know much of my career uh, working on Capitol Hill and the State Department and the Defense Department, uh, two tours in the White House, uh, mixed <clears throat> mixed in with. Mm-hmm. Um, some teaching at Georgetown and running a bunch of think tanks in and out of government.
0: So, so you write your PhD is, was your PhD on Okinawa on, on the Okinawa issue?
1: Right. It was on the return of Okinawa uh, to Japan.
0: Uh, and uh, I assume that, you know, that was what, well, that was what well I received. You, you got your PhD. What was your first stint then in, in government?
1: Well, the first thing I did having written my PhD was to recognize that I couldn't write <laughs> I, uh, you know, it just uh, long academic sentences, uh, drawn-out paragraphs, and so I went to work for a newspaper in Northern Virginia, uh, covered the 1972 political campaigns, uh, a lot of local politics, and um, I can remember the first article that I submitted to my editor came back with just about every other word crossed out. <laughs> and uh so that you know, yeah, economy, academic writing
0: will do that to you I think it will
1: indeed uh and it's, in in many ways that's the most uh, one of the most other than sort of the academic training uh, it's one of the most uh, valuable skills that I learned is to write short clear concise sentences and uh you know st- start with a good lead and that has served me well in all sorts of writing uh, yeah. since then but I went in yeah. that uh, job in journalism uh uh, I spent a little bit of time at the Congressional Research Service working in the foreign affairs area. Then I received a fellowship to go to Japan for a year, a postdoc, which I did. Went there with my wife, taught... uh, in the graduate program at Sophia University, U.S.-Japanese relations.
0: Well, what were you and, teaching? Uh, so, so you're teaching on on U.S.-Japanese relations at, at the time. Right. Is that your, so, yeah, what, I mean, so, a, so this is like the 1970s, but, right? So, what what are some of the key issues, key elements of the U.S.-Japanese relationship at at the time?
1: So, this was 72, uh, 73. I mean, we had uh, just seen the return of Okinawa, which tended to stabilize the relationship. Uh, You know, prior to that, in the late 60s, we had uh, very uh, vocal and large demonstrations in the streets of uh, Tokyo uh, against continued American possession of Okinawa. And so returning that, I think the right way, done by the Nixon administration, um, uh, tended to stabilize relations. Um, I think, uh, you know, there was a this was a time when people were trying to figure out where Japan was going. You had the notion of Japan incorporated uh, on the march, uh, headed to, you know, be the major American competitor in terms of GMP and global policy, global capabilities. And now, of course, that role is being played by China. Um, And uh, so you had, you had that, you know, you had people like Herman Kahn writing about, uh, a strong Japan, and then along comes Big Brzezinski and writes a book uh, um, about uh, Japan's weakness. Um, and uh, so you had this, one of the key elements at that point, Fragile Blossom, it was called. That At that point, you know, you have this question about where is Japan going? Uh, is it headed in a nationalistic direction? Uh, is it? Can we count on them? Uh, what can we count on them for? Is it, are we just protecting them? So there were issues, issues like that that we were discussing.
0: Uh, and what did you do when you came back to the states? Then,
1: so I, I came back. Um, I came back from Japan, and I went to work for a couple of years at the Office of Management and Budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, worked on uh, on Vietnam. These were the last days of Vietnam, at least our involvement there. Um, and uh, the Middle East. So, uh, so, I was.
0: I mean, on on, on Vietnam. I mean, what what's uh, was the sort of debate during the the, the Nixon administration that you're working in at, at the OMB? I mean, this is an office that you know basically audits and manages U.S. budget. So, what was the right. like? What was your interaction? What was your um, interaction with with sort of plans to to exit Vietnam at the time?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we were already out. The question at that point was how much. Military and economic assistance uh, do we give? And um, so we were trying to, we were getting uh, very high requests from the embassy in Saigon um, and trying to come up with reasonable uh, figures for both military and economic aid. But meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, there were amendments to cut aid altogether. And uh, so it was a you know, the, it was very clear that we were out. We weren't going to come back in with air power or anything else. And then I think the movements on the Hill at that point to try to cut aid um, finally were having some success after after years. And it perhaps came at the wrong time because that's when the North Vietnamese Army marched south in 1975, and I think the uh, South Vietnamese Army feeling that uh, uh, they no longer had support behind them just collapsed and there was a rout and and uh, vietnam fell so all that was in the spring of
0: 75
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, well, and in a way, then, could you say that the decision by the Congress to not you know, provide the funds that the White House was asking for sort of hastened the the end of, of the Vietnam War? I mean, it seems that providing more funding it's, at the time, right, would have dragged it on for, for much longer.
1: It's hard to make that judgment, um, you know, because you're trying to get into the minds of the South Vietnamese military and especially at the lower ranks. You know, why did they not fight? Um, Uh, I mean, I I think probably the outcome was inevitable. Um, uh, Whether it could have been held off for a little longer with more aid, uh, possibly. Um, But I think, you know, short of continued military support, it's unlikely that South Vietnam would have survived in the form that it was in. And uh, the United States just having lost 58,000 Americans to that war. We were just not going to go back in and continue the fight. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so sort of being, you know, working in, 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 policy circles in, in Washington, uh, you know, in, in the, the seventies and eighties, in what ways did the sort of experience of Vietnam, or, or what, in what ways did you sort of notice that the experience of U.S. participation in Vietnam kind of colored broader discussions about U.S. foreign policy?
1: Well, certainly it had a major impact, uh, not on the Ford administration, but on the Carter administration. I think the Carter administration was much more reserved, much less willing to use force, um, focused much more on... Moral issues, on the value issues, rather than perceived interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, uh, you know, we. I can only think of one case in which force was used, and that was the effort to try to get back the Iranian hostages. So that whole administration, uh, with its focus on on human rights, on trying to reduce arms sales, fairly ideological issues, uh, and a clear, I mean, a drop in defense spending. Mm-hmm. Did, unwillingness to use force—that was seen, I think, by the world as a weak administration. Um,
0: did you serve in it?
1: Uh, I was on the Hill at that time. I was working mm. originally for Senator Humphrey, Hubert Humphrey. So I—I I went from OMB to a mm-hmm. uh, short stay at the National Security Council, where I was uh, involved with the Law of the Seas, actually, in the negotiation of the Law of the Seas. Uh-huh. Uh,
0: treaty we could have a long conversation about that my friend <laughs> well we, we could i uh i remember those everyone days. will be asleep by the end of it but well, uh...
1: <laughs> no, we won't do that uh, but it it was um yeah. you know i think the bottom line there yeah. was that uh um we uh we moved unilaterally to create uh 200 mile zone and fishing right. rights and the world followed but we also um negotiated a over over time a good law of the seas convention which the united states unfortunately has still not ratified
0: well, well that actually there are i think a lot of parallels actually to the political situation regarding the the u.s um participation in the law of the sea and also the the paris agreement which is that you know By and large, the US abides by the precepts of the US Convention, of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, although it's not formally a ratified member of it. You know, similarly, you know, the Paris Accord is just like a a voluntary sort of thing that, you know, that, that, um, there really isn't much you know loss in in abiding by it or or not abiding by it in terms of like one's legal obligation. And so it seems like it's another one of those examples of the US kind of operating outside of the bounds of every other international uh every other country in the world and kind of going its its own way to the detriment of of perhaps like its longer term interests.
1: Well, I I think that's right. I mean, I would very much like to see us having Having rat- you know, ratified the Law of the Seas Convention, and I think you know we do abide by it by and large, but it does hurt our standing. Uh, we, you know, it, we cannot bring cases as easily. Um, we have uh, contentious issues in the South China Sea and the Arctic uh, as global warming takes its toll there, and uh, we have a whole new set of issues. Well, we're we are not as well positioned uh, to make our case
0: in either of those
1: two critical areas of the world. So yeah, we do abide by it and uh and so far so good, but it has not you know, it has not served us well, I don't there's not a good reason in my mind for not proceeding to uh, ratification of the law of the sea's convention. I'd say the same thing for the Paris
0: court. Yeah. I mean, it's also, also the, the sort of politics of it in terms of ratification are, are kind of similar in that, you know, with the law of the sea of the business interests, uh, approve it. You know, you have the military, military likes it, peace groups like it, you know, internationalist groups like it, but there's just like a kind of a small core of ideologues, uh, that, that don't, uh, for reasons, I don't know, of like sovereignty or, or, or whatever, I can't get into their heads. Um similarly, I mean, with the, the Paris Agreement it has like a very broad base of support politically, yet right. um it's still sort of so fraught um in terms of like the, the, the antipathy towards it is stronger than those who um you know want to see the US remain in engaged.
1: No, I think that's that's right. Um uh you have small but highly vocal groups mm. uh that present ideological points of view that uh then become attractive to enough senators to prevent the ratification I suspect if we had a serious vote tomorrow excluding you know the Trump administration on law of the seas we would ratify it it's just that they've been able to block it um, in various ways so it's, it's unfortunate but uh, it's another example of um, you know uh, a missed opportunity to enhance
0: American leadership um- At what point did you join the Defense Department?
1: All right. So we got to OMB, and let me just say parenthetically that uh, if anybody wants to go into the executive branch to work, you can't pick a better place in the Office of Management budget. Uh, For those who are listening and are looking up at their careers, OMB is a great place to start because it gives you an overview of the way government works. Um. I also, incidentally, did the Middle East there, so I was all involved in the various establishment of the various aid packages for Israel and Egypt. So I went from there uh, to the Hill, spent eight years with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, started working there with Hubert Humphrey, uh, who was in the last couple of years of his life. And I spent eight or nine years on the committee, uh, ended up, uh, was responsible for uh, military assistance, arm sales, a lot of the uh, international security issues. I ended up as the uh, legislative director, served both Democrats and Republicans up there, which is something in those days you could still do. It's impossible to do that now. Um, and so I, you know, I, I had uh, some fascinating moments up there. I got heavily involved in Korean, American withdrawal of troops from South Korea, which I, I think I was able to help stop. Um, And I was involved in the F-15 and AWACS sales to Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, basically managed those issues for the committee in both cases.
0: Well, what was the South Korea issue? So the South Korean government wanted to boot U.S. troops?
1: No, the the opposite. Um, This was Jimmy Carter. We just talked about Mm -hmm. his mindset coming in. Uh, One of the things that he developed in the campaign in 1976 was a plan to withdraw American troops from South Korea. Uh, South Koreans were in a panic. Uh, They relied very heavily, more so even then than now, uh, on American uh, force presence in South Korea to deter an attack. And Carter wanted to pull out in a five-year period. Um, Meanwhile, uh, our intelligence community was doing a reassessment of the threat from the North and uh, concluding that the threat was greater than we had thought before, so um, we I did a report uh, which became the Humphrey Glenn Report, Senators Humphrey and Glenn, saying, you know, withdrawal of American troops from South Korea could cause a war, and uh, so uh, that became a fairly uh, high-profile report, and I think we helped stop the withdrawal plans.
0: Um. So where did you go from from the committee then?
1: So I was on the committee until 1984, 1985, worked a little bit for Mac Mathias in there, worked for Chuck Percy, Senator Percy, both great uh, people. Uh, And then I went from there to a couple of years at the State Department, where I ran a think tank for them called the Center for the Study of Foreign Affairs, did that for two years, and then I went to London to the International Institute for Strategic Studies, where I... Spent three and a half years basically watching the end of the Cold War and uh, Desert Storm and American engagement, re engagement uh, in the Middle East. I was uh, uh, director of studies and deputy director of the uh, IISS there.
0: Uh, and, and when did you rejoin the U.S. government then?
1: Well, I was still a couple of years later. I, I went from London to Georgetown University uh, for a couple of years, and I ran the Institute for the Study of Diplomacy there. Uh, While there, I worked in the uh, Clinton campaign, uh, and when he won, I came in as the deputy director of policy planning at the policy planning staff in uh, the State Department did that for a couple of years. And then, so uh, so that, that
0: was a pretty pivotal moment though, right there with, with uh, Warren Christopher in charge, kind of like a new era, uh, uh, you know, like a, a, a relatively green at the time, foreign policy president. So I imagine that your shop was probably able to exert some amount of influence over the white house, particularly given his kind of uh, sort of known appetite for wanting to kind of consume knowledge and reports and, and the kind of stuff that the, uh, policy planning staff puts together. So, what was your, like, what was your initial charge while you were there?
1: Um, well, we had. I guess the first thing I'd say is that uh, actually the Bush administration before uh, the Clinton administration did a reasonably good job in the foreign policy area. I mean, they managed the end of the Cold War and German reunification extremely well. So, in a sense, that gave the Clinton administration. Uh, a very positive starting place for its foreign policy and uh, so one of the first things we did was to try to devise a um, a strategy for the Clinton, a foreign policy strategy and it became a strategy of engagement and enlargement and the notion was enlarging the number of democracies in the world um, because democracies don't fight each other by and large so this was a way to um, it was sort of an ideological uh, approach, uh, but it, uh, it also had some sound sort of foreign policy, mm-hmm. national security. Well, address.
0: it goes back to your initial <laughs> epiphany of, of wanting to figure out a way to stop wars.
1: Yeah, uh, that's correct. And, and so uh, from that sort of broad notion of uh, enlargement, um, uh, specifically that came down to NATO, and then you had the debate which lasted the better part of the decade uh on NATO enlargement and how quickly do mm-hmm. you do it
0: cuz the the there, idea was that like the enticement of NATO would cause these newly uh you know kind of freer countries these new democracies in eastern europe to become more firmly entrenched and kind of strengthen their institutions and sort of be more firmly set democracies
1: yeah i mean when when this started there were 16 members of the alliance now they're twenty eight so just one little vignette I remember going to Warsaw in nineteen ninety one uh, or ninety ninety two I guess it was just after the Soviet union collapsed and uh, this place was in turmoil it it had um, it certainly had the solidarity uh, feel to it but it was a nation that had been um, its economy was all centralized planning. Uh, you know, there was wild hyperinflation in the country, uh, where you know you need fist, fistfuls of local paper currency to buy anything. So, what became clear to me there, and I, this was part of my my thinking in the whole enlargement process, was that you needed this country was going to go through turmoil, and to get through that economic and social turmoil, it needed a a firm security orientation to get it through that period. And that's what NATO enlargement could provide, and did provide, in fact, for it. It worked pretty well.
0: In other words, it wouldn't have to worry about external threats. It could kind of focus on what it needed to domestically to get its house in order.
1: That's part of it, although at that point, you know, the Soviet Union had collapsed, and there didn't appear to be a a Russian threat at the time. Uh, It was just a matter of Social orientation, uh, so that as you are working your way through very difficult economic times, moving yourself from a state run uh, economic system to a free market system with all of the pains involved in that kind of a transition, you have a fundamental orientation to Western values uh, and to the security that comes with that. So that was what was behind uh, much of that thinking. Then well, at that point, you know we were even offering membership to Russia. Uh, if it uh, w- would have been able to to make the uh, right set of domestic choices
0: so i mean do you ever sort of think of what like an alternate history might be if if the Clinton administration at the time did not pursue a kind of like values based foreign policy i mean you know you know a few weeks ago secretary of state tillerson gave a speech to his staff saying basically that American values are going to be subordinate to American interests in the pursuit of, of U.S. foreign policy. Um, as if the two were somehow sort of in, in direct opposition to each other. I mean, if that kind of orientation were in place in that era, how might, how different might sort of the outcome of, of sort of stability of, of Eastern Europe be today?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question and the way you pose it in terms of the trade-off between values and interests. I mean, um, hopefully, uh, in most of the foreign policy choices that we have to make, uh, values and interests align with one another. Uh, During the Cold War, they most often did uh, because we were in an ideological battle where our values were clear and they generally uh, were the same as our interests. Uh, After the end of the Cold War, uh, it was sometimes less clear, uh, and whether you follow interests or values. In the case of the Clinton administration, uh, I think the decisions to enlarge NATO and then subsequently the EU enlargement uh, provided that orientation, and now we have um, a, a Europe that uh, should be very stable. Now we're seeing some unraveling in the EU and maybe even in NATO, but Certainly in the time, you know, between the mid-90s and today, uh, in my view, those were sound decisions to try to uh, solidify democracy and liberal democratic Western values in these countries. Uh, Now, some would say that this is what turned Russia uh, against NATO and against the United States, that they saw that as encroachment, encirclement. and uh, yet, you know, in my view, we if, if Russia had behaved properly, we would have offered this to them as well. Um, what happened, in fact, is that we provided uh, the right choice and the ability to make that right choice to all of Central and Eastern Europe.
0: I wanted to ask you about your book about historic foreign policy blunders. What inspired that line of research?
1: Well, in part, it was um, the notion that the united states and china uh china a rising power ran some risk of blundering into war uh, themselves and so we thought we would go back into history and take a look at uh eight case studies uh, in situations where uh, in fact the leader did make or leaders made terrible blunders that led to war and catastrophe test for them so um, it was really trying to sort of pull the lessons out of history and apply them uh, potentially to uh, the United States and China
0: so so like what can um, you know, Napoleon's decision to attack Russia Moscow in in the winter tell us about uh, you know whether or not say the Trump administration might in, you know might blunder might into war with China?
1: So what we tried to do was to highlight characteristics uh, of blunderous decision-making. And we put together uh, kind of a matrix with about 25 characteristics and tried to figure out which of those characteristics were most prevalent in the blunders. And um, uh, some of those that we came up with were excessive hubris Reliance on intuition uh, and experience rather than analysis. Um, unwarranted confidence uh, to the point of arrogance or hubris in uh, the capabilities of your own side, um, underestimating the capabilities of the other side, um, a, having a strategic concept or vision that. Um, you have created sort of a plan for victory that you tend to believe in, which then tends to be uh, too rigid and often wrong. Um, failure to consider consider um, other contingencies, you sort of get stuck on your track, uh, and so on. These these are there's uh, so seven or eight of these characteristics that rose to the top. Uh,
0: so I mean, looking, looking, you know, it's still obviously early in the, in the Trump administration, but looking at the kind of characteristics that you identified as um, encouraging a propensity to blunder into a strategic mistake, like a, a war that shouldn't have been waged. I mean, do you see any of those characteristics present already in, in the Trump administration? Well, I think
1: there are some there. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're ready to blunder. I mean, in some ways, the uh, these other blunders were situations in which the decision was to go to war. Uh, and in some cases, one could argue that the uh, Trump administration has some aspects of isolationism, which would be the opposite, not wanting to press for war. But to answer your question, yeah, uh, there are some of these characteristics present. It's it's hubris. Uh, it's, um, Decision making in small groups or by a sole leader based on intuition, uh, based on the sense that the individual leader knows best and knows all, Um, unwillingness to really accept and study analysis uh, of potential outcomes uh, for decision making, underestimating an enemy. and overestimating your own capabilities; these these are all characteristics that um, we can attribute to
0: at least um, some aspects of Trump's personality. So, uh, looking around the world, is there a potential point of of blunder, a potential um, sort of series of missteps? You think that that might happen? That's more likely to happen than than others. Like, is there a potential um, blunder waiting out there that you see as as having you know, some potential for becoming a reality.
1: Well, again, uh, some of the early Trump uh, foreign policy decisions have been cautious in terms of military uh, engagement. But if they're, I mean, we, we certainly see um, an escalation of tension in, with regard to North Korea. Uh, and we see um, at least. Um, some Trump and Trump-associated comments relating to the South China Sea. So China, um, those are two.
0: Well, that and, probably... and China was the, your, 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 the reason you wrote that book. It's interesting because I, I was watching, I remember, the Rex Tillerson confirmation hearings. Uh, and he you know, said that one, one thing that sort of he would be more forthright with is sort of kind of flexing that military muscle in the South China Sea vis-a-vis uh vis-a-vis China and and sort of China's expansionism there and and it was kind of interesting to see that kind of muscular kind uh, of posture from from Tillerson and I'm I'm wondering if that might sort of is a scenario that you looked like while kind of studying your 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 book.
1: Well, if um the United States would try to interdict say a Chinese reinforcement Uh, of one of the reefs that they have uh, built and are beginning to militarize, uh, that could uh, lead to unforeseen consequences. Uh, I think, um, I'm not sure that all the blundering characteristics would apply to that, but it certainly is a potential uh, danger. And we see, you know, with regard to North Korea, Trump saying, this will not stand, we're not going to allow them to get a... Missile that can reach the United States with a nuclear warhead uh, on it. So, um, which may actually not be a bad policy, but um, it—it's the uh, there is kind of a tone to some of the Trump statements that, um, in my mind, um, do um, echo uh, some of the characteristics of uh, previous uh, blunderers.
0: So speaking of North Korea, I know that you were involved in negotiations back in the early days of the Clinton administration that led to the, quote, agreed framework. For those unfamiliar, can you describe what that negotiation looked like?
1: Uh, we basically uh, convinced North Korea to put uh, over 7,000 nuclear fuel rods into IAEA monitored pools. Uh, and that lasted uh until the Bush administration came in. Um, we were focusing in those negotiations uh, on plutonium, because that was the track that North Korea was on. Um, later, they started toying with to enrich uranium. And um, that was what uh, caused the Bush administration to pull out of the agreement. The problem is that now, looking back on it, all of the nuclear weapons that uh, the North Koreans have uh, produced... Uh, come out of those fuel rods that were uh, in the IAEA safeguarded pools. So, uh, to me, that was—it's almost Bush
0: as and, if that was the Bush administration blundering.
1: Well, I think they made uh, they made uh, several major mistakes early on. Uh, that was one uh, pulling out of the agreed framework. The second was the abandonment of the ABM Treaty, which is something else I worked on late in the Clinton administration. We knew at that point that we were going to uh, have to deploy some ballistic missile defenses to deal with the North Korean threat, and I spent a lot of time working on that uh, as uh, Bill Clinton, Senior Director for Defense Policy at the National Security Council.
0: Uh, so the, so the idea was to, you're going to put these anti-ballistic missiles in, in what, the region, in order to try to shoot down a potential North Korean missile?
1: Well, they would be deployed in Alaska and at uh, in California, Vandenberg. Uh, and uh, we would deploy small numbers. I think there currently are um, less than 40 deployed. These are mid-course interceptors. It's hit to kill, so you're trying to basically hit a bullet with a bullet, uh, which is not easy to do, but it's not impossible. Uh, so this was being driven by North Korean proliferation, um, and but we had to deal with uh, the Russians because we, we, we had uh, uh, convinced them uh, that the anti-ballistic missile treaty provided mutual dis- deterrence on both sides. So it was an American idea back in the 60s and 70s. They bought into it. Um, what we were trying to do in the Clinton administration was to design a protocol which would allow the United States to go forward with some more um, missile interceptors uh, without violating the treaty. So we were going to make an amendment to the treaty. Well, that was the right way to go. I think we could have negotiated that with the Russians, uh, but... The Bush administration came in and just abandoned the ABM treaty. So that was their All, second big
0: altogether. Although it's not probably dissimilar to the current administration, actually the previous administration's decision to try to deploy these sort of missile interceptors in South Korea that is, you know, antagonizing China.
1: Yeah, that's true. Those are the fads. Those are shorter range uh, they're designed to to intercept shorter range missiles. Uh, What we're talking about here is um, intercontinental ballistic missiles that we're intercepting. Um, So the FADs that we are deploying, which the Chinese are concerned about, uh, there's some similarity, but but, uh, we had uh, worked over decades with the Soviets to develop this notion of a second strike capability, which provided strategic stability, nuclear stability, um, and the ABM Treaty was the cornerstone of that whole agreed philosophy. And then suddenly that was pulled out from under the Russians. Uh, If it had been done for good reason, I'd be fine with that, but it wasn't. I mean, there was an alternative. So
0: the first mistake they made. Well, well, can can I just stop you there and ask me what was it like, like personally, as a former administration official who had worked hard on all these agreements, just to see the next administration sort of undo all the work that you've done? You, You know, devoted years, months, you know, weeks, sleepless nights to this kind of stuff. I mean. You probably have uh, the kind of a similar reaction happening from current Obama administration, seeing a lot of their previous things being, being thrown out. I mean, we're, we're speaking, you know, not too long after the U.S. decided to uh, pull out of the Paris agreement, which, you know, the U.S. people, you know, U.S. delegates were front and stable negotiating that agreement. I mean, what's, what is kind of going through your mind? And how are you reacting almost like emotionally to these decisions uh, of the Bush administration after what you've been working on for so long is, is no longer, you know, U.S. policy?
1: Well, I guess the you know the first reaction is is frustration uh, because you believe in the, these two cases the North Korean agreement and the uh, ABM treaty with uh, Soviets then Russians. Uh, you believe that uh, that those agreements uh, had a solid basis to them. I mean, every agreement has flaws, but but I think the you know the the concern. Was for me at the time that somehow abandoning these two agreements would result downstream in real dangers to our national security. And that certainly has proven to be the case with North Korea. And I would argue that uh, the abrogation of the ABM Treaty was one of the key elements uh, in U.S. Russian relations that ultimately led uh, Putin to take a much more hostile attitude towards the United States. So in both cases, it wasn't just about, you know, being frustrated because of hard work that was done and overturned, but rather it was, uh, at the time, being concerned about the long-term consequences, and then, you know, now, uh, 15, 16 years later, seeing that in fact those negative consequences did develop. So um, it's frustration, but it's also sort of real concern about the national security consequences of these decisions.
0: Um, so yeah. we're we're just about out of time. Uh, anything else you're working on that you wanted to highlight, discuss?
1: Well, the last thing I'd say uh, is uh, in terms of my own work uh, in my career was that I spent a, quite a bit of time at the National Defense University um, as the director of research there. And, um, that really was about building a capacity, uh, within the defense department to do the kind of deep research that, uh, I believe is necessary for sound decision-making. Uh, just as we, when we were talking about the blunders, their decisions were often made with little or no analysis uh, what I was trying to do there was to create institutions, um, and we did. We got about a $25 million research program going there. Institutions that would provide the kind of in-depth research that then decision-makers in the Pentagon and elsewhere could be using to better inform their decisions. Uh, so at, um, that was at times a frustrating thing to do because... Um, um, it's not that kind of research isn't always appreciated uh, by decision makers. They instinctively think they know what they want to do, but nonetheless, I think we can I can point to a whole large number of studies that had real world impact.
0: Do Do you want to talk about one before we go that you can think of? Yeah, I'll do that.
1: Uh, I mean, one in particular. Uh, so. Um, We are in uh, uh, September, October, November of 2001. Uh, 9-11 has happened. Uh, NATO declares an Article 5 uh, to be in effect, uh, which means an attack on one is an attack on all. So NATO is with us um, to fight al-Qaeda. We go into Afghanistan after al-Qaeda. And... uh, Europe says, well, how can we help you? Our answer to Europe was, you can't. We're fighting this our own way. We have new ways of fighting. We are fighting in a transformed way, using information technology, precision strike, all of that. So what we did at NDU was to try to create the force that NATO and the Europeans should have had so that if we were ever in that situation again, Europe would have some capability to fight with us. And we created, first, a colleague of mine and I, we wrote several papers on what came to be known the NATO response force. Um, So we designed, uh, using our uh, our research, uh, we designed um, a theoretical force. And then once we had designed that and written a paper on it, we took it first to the White House to the Bush White House and then to the Bush Defense Department. And uh, they were both very supportive of this idea. And so, out of that, uh, we got Rumsfeld to buy into it, and he took it to NATO. And out of that was born the NATO Response Force. So, that's just one example of uh, a case in which doing sort of real time research on current issues can really make a difference in terms of. Um, um, you know, enhancing your your national security capabilities and, and policy making.
0: All right. Well, well, Hans, thank you so much for your time. This was great.
1: Good. All right. Enjoy the discussion.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Hans. Very excited about some shows we have uh, coming up in the near future. And if you want to access those, you can become a premium subscriber. Uh, You also will get a complimentary subscription to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clips service. This is a news clip service that I put together with a friend, a partner, and we send it out to you and other subscribers, mostly in the NGO community, government officials, who want to get a handle on the most important news from around the world that is relevant to their work, their life. It's news that is often not A1 front page news in the New York Times. We don't talk about the latest thing that Trump said or did or tweeted. Rather, this is news mostly from the developing world or news that is relevant to global humanitarian issues more broadly. Anyway, anyone who subscribes to the show at the $10 a month level will get that complimentary. All right, see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.